You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And good afternoon and welcome. Welcome back to Fired Up. This is Steve. I'm your host each week here as we talk about politics right here on WJMS Radio. And I want to get right into it and down to business. Uh, Let's start off as we always do and recap the latest statistics coming out of the COVID-19 world. We're up to 4.23 million cases and over 147,000 uh, deaths reported due to COVID virus. Uh, Want to talk a little bit about that. We're going to touch back on it in another segment later on in the show. But just want to give you kind of a timeline as to how the U.S. has progressed uh, with the COVID virus. Uh, taking into account that our first reported uh, cases and fatality happened back in uh, February, March of this year, uh, it took 99 days for the United States to hit its first 1 million reported cases. And uh, it took 43 days for that number to go from 1 million to 2 million. And then it took 28 days uh, for us to cross the 3 million case threshold. And finally, to get us over where we are now, over 4 million uh, cases, it took us 15 days. So, you know, the, the clear indication is that the coronavirus COVID-19 uh, pandemic is expanding and it is rapidly growing here in this country uh, in, in spite of the efforts that we are uh, applying to it. And primarily, in, in my opinion, due to the fact that a large portion of the American public is disregarding what is the clear common sense and safety and scientific uh, requirements to, to help control the spread of the disease. You know, obviously, that's wearing a mask and being socially distant and washing hands and, and exercising those disciplines. Uh, and still we have just huge numbers of people who either refuse to wear their mask or just defiant about wearing one uh, for all kinds of reasons. The, you know, the Internet is full of uh, videos and Instagrams and, and all of these where you know, people are getting irate and in some cases hostile uh, and you know, in, in some cases violent to the point of uh, people dying. Uh, just because they don't want to exercise the simple precaution of putting a mask on. So, you know, while I understand, you know, you have a right to make choices. However, you know, there are some choices that are necessary for the greater common good uh, than just your own personal uh, freedom of choice. And if by exercising, you know, a little bit of, you know, following the rules, uh, helps you know curtail the spread the spreading of this uh, illness, and you know helps keep your family, your community, and your your country as a whole safe. Uh, frankly, I don't see that as too big a price to pay. So, just my two cents on the matter. Uh, our cases continue to grow, whereas when you look around the world in other countries where they have had you know spread of the pandemic and through really conscientious. Uh, safety measures have managed to reduce their incident rates and fatality rates to a minute fraction of what we're seeing here in the United States. So, you know, it, it's important. It really is. You know, let's practice what we need to practice in order to stop this, this pandemic, to control the spread, and to get it under control. All right. So, going to pick up on a couple of things, tie up a few loose ends from, from prior episodes. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the the voting situation. Obviously, we are as of today, Monday, we are 99 days from the November election. Uh, The clock is ticking and the pressure is mounting on both sides of the political spectrum. And there have been a lot of discussions about, you know, how the vote is going to occur and I'm not just talking about the, the process of mail-in or absentee ballots being filed in, in many states, if not all states across the country. What I'm talking about is the overall function of how our electoral system works. Uh, as you know, in this country, we have a popular vote where every person gets to vote for the candidate of their choice up and down the ticket. Uh, but 
primarily, and for the sake of this argument, we're going to talk about the presidential races. And there's also the Electoral College, which is a construct that was put together uh, around the founding of the country, and its intention was to balance out population versus states when it comes to electing the president and vice president of the country. The original thinking was that uh, if you know, the popular vote was you know, the only method that was out there to choose a candidate, then by simply winning the most populous states uh, back in those days, and we're talking the 1700s here, uh, a, a potential presidential candidate could effectively you know, win the nomination as president and vice president by simply winning you know, one or two of the most populous states and making the smaller states you know, basically you know, ineffective in determining who the leader of the country was. So the concept of an electoral college was built. And in a, in a nutshell and really quickly, it works like this. Every state is issued a number of electors based on the number of senators and the number of representatives in the House of Representatives that each state has. So at a minimum, the smallest states, such as Rhode Island and Washington, D.C., uh, actually have three electoral votes. You know, two for their senators uh, and one for their House of Representatives rep. And other states, such as California, have many hundreds of electors. So, you know, overall, what has become over time and as our country has grown and spread around is that the idea of what the Electoral College was supposed to combat has actually overrun it. And the most populous states obviously have the largest number of electoral votes. And this has turned into this, you know, this swing state, this key state, this, this deciding state battle that we have seen in our electoral process over the last, you know, you know, decades, you know, four, five, six decades. And, you know, it is, it is something that has been discussed many times and always has, has run into a couple of key hurdles, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but it has always never uh, rose to anything, you know, like, like a huge groundswell uh, or, or, or gain a lot of momentum uh, in order to make it happen. And one of the reasons is that the Electoral College is, you know, is chronicled in the Constitution. And as such, in order to eliminate the Electoral College or in order to modify the Electoral College in some way, uh, it would require a constitutional amendment, which is, you know, the House and the Senate putting a, a bill together and that going out to the states for ratification. And you'd need 38 states in order to make that ratification happen. What you end up with is this, this circle that goes around and says, we want to eliminate the Electoral College. Well, okay, in order to do that, we need a constitutional constitutional amendment. Well, that's not going to happen. So, okay, forget about it. Um, but given the current polarity of our electoral system and the division in our country, uh, the, the argument to eliminate the Electoral College uh, has seemed to have gained more strength than it has in the past. And quite a few uh, Congress people and senators uh, are having conversations about um, modifying the Electoral College or flat out eliminating it. And what we'd be left with is a popular vote decision process where everybody's vote would go into the pool and whichever candidate garnered the most votes nationally, that person would become president and vice president or that party would win the presidential and vice presidential election. And there, there is some merit to that and also some downfalls. Obviously, you know, as the, the founders foresaw, you know, 240 years ago, that the states with the highest populations would exercise an outsized influence on the overall election. However, one of the arguments that has gained a lot of strength in the, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years or so is that you know, it is no different than the outsized influence of the Electoral College, and it is more reflective of the wishes of the people. You know, obviously, we look back to you know, the election of the current administration, 
where you know the Democratic candidate actually won more popular votes than you know the the president did, but because the president managed to pull together a collection of electoral states that gave him the 271 votes electorally that he needed to become president, the person who was not the primary choice of the population actually won the presidency. So, you know, that has been a bone of contention for the last, you know, three and a half years. And and coming into the election now, we see it's rearing its ugly head again as the so-called battleground states, those states that, you know, have a key role or, you know, generally tend to swing from one party to another election over election are in play, as it were, as the states that will ultimately select who becomes president and vice president of the United States. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of discussion to be had about what the electoral process in the United States uh, should be. It is something that is going to take time to, you know, work its way through all of the machinations that need to go on. But clearly it is something that is worthy of further discussion. So, you know, just something to keep in mind and something to put in your thinking cap uh, as you go forward. Uh, Side note, uh, please take note. Um, I want to give you the email address for the show uh, at, at this early point um, because I'm going to ask a question and I'd really like to get feedback on it. Uh, to email the Fired Up Radio show, it is just that. It is firedupradio, it's one word, at yahoo.com. So make a note of that and when we get to the, the end of the show, I'll make the call out for you know, what I'd like to hear back from you guys uh, via email. Um, the second point I wanted to just tie up and, and, and wrap up is, you know, as we have gotten closer and closer to the election, obviously the media is, is playing a frenzied role in the election process and the information wars going on between the candidates and between the parties and between the political causes and, you know, all of these things. And something to keep in mind, and I talked about this, you know, early, early in the, the show series uh, through, you know, the, the end of last year. And that is the oversized amount of control that the media has over the information we receive. Uh, this is going to tie into a discussion we're about to have in a minute or so. But I just wanted to kind of remind you that there are several large broadcasting uh, conglomerates that control the overwhelming majority of media outlets in this country. Obviously, when we think about it, we think about Rupert Murdoch and the News Corp organization that controls just a vast number of newspapers and radio stations and TV stations. But there's also outlets like Sinclair Broadcasting. There's also outlets that are, you know, more progressive leaning as well. So, you know, you have to keep in mind that the messages that you get uh, are, you know, not necessarily reflective of your local viewpoint, even though they are coming from your local news station. Uh, Sinclair uh, Media, for one example, was called out uh, uh, last year for you know its role of of scripting the commentaries of 190 news outlets around the country. Uh, they were all given a script and required under their contract to read that script verbatim as part of their daily news broadcast. And, you know, if you go to and and search on the site, and I will dig up the link from my earlier show and repost it out on my Twitter feed, and it, it gives you a collage of these TV stations, and you see all of these different news anchors from local media outlets reading or speaking the same exact script. And, you know, this is something that should be concerning to any, you know, thinking American out there uh, and, you know, something that really should make you question as to where does the truth come from? And, you know, that that's the segue that's going to move us into the next segment of what we're going to talk about here. Uh, But, you know, keep in mind that when you're listening to your local news or you're listening to your national news or cable news or even, you know, you get into your your social media feeds uh, that, 
you know where the information is being sourced from is of paramount importance and likely more important than the actual inf information that you're being given so just just something to think about there and why I always say you need to you know reach out you need to do your diligence you need to gather your information search for the truth find the facts dig deeper dig wider so with that being said it moves into you know the next subject that I wanted to touch on and this is this has been a a involved and challenging subject to do my research on because the actual subject itself is so very subjective and basically what I was checking into and what I was doing research on is really from the standpoint of information and news and and you know what we get in terms of how we make our decisions so you know in, in doing my research uh, I went out and and looked at a lot of different sources I actually opened up uh, the dictionary that I have here in my office uh, and for you Millennials you know tongue-in-cheek uh, dictionaries are books that have writing in them that define words uh, used in the English language uh, they're they while they're found on online really the books are kind of where you want to go but anyway I digress um, I, I wanted to find out what you know the definition of truth is and you know I, I got a several different versions of it and I actually came up and said okay so let's see what the new millennium version of you know research would give me so I went out and I asked you know my my uh, little friend over here Alexa and asked her to give me a definition of what the truth is and this is what Alexa had to say Alexa can you give the definition of truth I have ten more definitions for the noun truth one conformity with fact or reality verity two a verified or indisputable fact proposition principle or the like three the state or character of being true four actuality or actual existence five an obvious or accepted fact truism platitude six honesty integrity truthfulness seven ideal or fundamental reality apart from and transcending perceived experience eight agreement with a standard or original nine accuracy as of position or adjustment ten fidelity or constancy so she gave me you know 10 definitions and you know fact checking those they are in line with some of the major uh, dictionaries you know whether it's the Oxford Dictionary uh, Webster uh, Funk and Wagnalls and you know they all match up and line up so that that's where she was getting her information from but you know it, it gives us a good starting point for understanding kind of what is the truth and you know another way to look at it is what are the things out there that we believe and hold as truth that actually have been proven by facts to be not true and I'll give you a couple of examples uh, about 1500 years ago uh, the known world at that time believed that the earth was the center of the universe that everything in the universe revolved around the earth including the Sun all of the stars and everything and they based it on you know what they could see at night it wasn't until you know a uh, hundred years later that scientific observation and measurements uh, proved that actually the earth did in fact orbit around the Sun and the Sun orbited through a large collection of planets called the Milky Way galaxy and the idea that the earth was the center of the universe was proven false uh, another is that about seven or eight hundred years ago the known world at the time believed that the earth was flat side note there are still people out there who believe that the world is flat even though scientific evidence again pointed out uh, through observation and through you know determination that the world was in fact a sphere and that it was round there are other things that people believe that kind of fall into what we call quote conspiracy theories close quote 
Uh, one of them is that there was not an actual landing by man on the moon uh, back in 1969. And, you know, that kind of flies in the face of the collection of you know rocks and soil in the Smithsonian Institution that don't scientifically match up with any uh, rocks or soil found here on Earth, so therefore they must have come from somewhere off Earth, hence pointing to the fact that actually moon landings did occur. That Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Well, I can remember at the time, as most of the country did, the case that was presented by the United States and the, to the United Nations and listening to the explanations of you know, the, the political experts and the scientific experts and the military experts, including Colin Powell, who was highly respected as you know, a military general at the time, and coming away from that really believing that there were weapons of mass destruction, there were mobile chemical weapons labs and so forth uh, that were never found when the U.S., based on that evidence, actually invaded and the, the uh, war in Iran was started. Um, another that uh, came up and, and has come up over the years was that former President Obama was not born in the United States, that he was actually born in Kenya. And that one grabbed a lot of traction, a lot of attention, and even resulted in uh, him going and getting a printed copy of his birth certificate uh, to prove that he was in fact born in the United States and therefore was a legitimate person who could be president. Uh, and by the way, there was never any uh, similar document produced from a Kenyan authority claiming otherwise. So that one was kind of, again, debunked based on the, the facts put in. And again, there's still people that don't buy that one. Uh, the Russians did not interfere in the 2016 election. Continues to be an issue. Um, yet, yet 17 independent defense, defense industry uh, agencies all corroborated you know, independently and came to the same conclusion that they did, in fact, interfere with the election. Uh, you know, and then we've got you know uh, one of the big ones that I found and I thought was was most indicative of what. Uh, the truth and reality are and how they're related to one another. We can all go back and remember to our elementary school days when we were taught that Christopher Columbus discovered America. You know, that he sailed from Spain in three ships across the Atlantic Ocean and, you know, discovered the continent of America. Well, the facts are, and this is according to the handwritten and verified uh, ship's logs written by Christopher Columbus was that he in fact never set foot on the continental United States. He landed in uh, various Caribbean islands that are now the Bahamas as well as the island later called Hispaniola. He also explored the Central and South American coasts but he didn't reach North America which of course was already inhabited by Native Americans and he never thought that he had found a new continent. You may also remember that it's believed that Norse explorer Leif Erikson reached Canada perhaps 500 years before Columbus was born, and there are some who believe that the Phoenician sailors crossed the Atlantic much earlier than that. So the Columbus discovering America uh, turns out to be not factually proved. He actually discovered you know, the islands in the Caribbean and so forth, uh, but over time, that has become an accepted truth without a factual basis. And I say that to move into the modern day. Uh, we have a, a very big uh, truth discussion going on on a couple of fronts. And when we come back from our break, we're going to dive into these uh, for the second half of the show. And, you know, it really fits with what we are seeing happening every day here in this country. So we'll take our break here. You're listening to Fired Up. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this break. We get down to the beat, y'all. We get down, down to the beat, y'all. We get down to the beat, y'all. It's like we're not going anywhere. Maybe it's because there's something in the I don't even care anymore. 
right, and we're back. Uh, you're listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMS Radio, and this is Steve, and we're going to pick it up where we left off. We're, we're having a conversation about the truth and what defines the truth. Uh, Alexa weighed in and gave us, you know, the, the 10 definitions that she had, uh, which came out of dictionaries, by the way, because that's the way the algorithm works. Uh, but wanted to bring it up to the current moment in our our history and our journey here. Uh, an article came out on the 26th, and it, the headline reads: uh, Republican Senator Tom Cotton introduces bill to stop schools from teaching the 1619 project. And you know, to to preface it, the 1619 project was a uh, documentary series that was written um, by you know Nicole Hanna of the New York Times uh, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize and it details you know information uh, that she and researchers found tracing the history of the arrival of enslaved people to the shores of this country uh, back to 1619 uh, effectively creating a a rewritten version of US history for that time period and you know it, it has been met with a lot of controversy, uh, a lot of uh, resentment, uh, particularly on the conservative side of the political spectrum, uh, for you know many many different reasons. But one of the things that has been argued is that the 1619 project is trying to uh, produce what is called revisionist history. Revisionist history is when you, know, you look back at historical facts and things that have been documented to happen, and through editing or omission or you know, other changes, that history gets reshaped and repositioned according to you know, whatever the popular whim of the time is. And in particular, uh, Senator Cotton has uh, introduced a bill that would essentially uh, remove funding from those schools that persist in teaching the 1619 Project information as part of their American History course. Uh, Cotton's bill, titled Saving American History Act of 2020, uh, states that the new legislation would prohibit the use of federal funds to teach the 1619 Project by K-12 schools or school districts. Schools that teach the 1619 Project would also be ineligible for federal professional development grants. Uh, according to uh, Microsoft Network, or MSN, Cotton states that under the bill, the Secretaries of Education, Health and Human Services, and Agriculture would be required to prorate federal funding to schools that decide to teach the 1619 Project, determined by how much it costs to plan and teach that, curri that curriculum. So, you know, essentially... So they're making the argument that the history of the United States, particularly uh, the history that revolves around uh, the importation and, and treatment of enslaved people in the United States uh, in the, the 1600s, uh, is actually the de facto truth about American history uh, when the evidence and the information that's been gathered uh, seems to indicate otherwise. Uh, it, it is known and it is factually documented that not only were enslaved people from the continent of Africa brought to this country uh, to provide labor and, and other things, but also uh, Europeans were also brought to this country. However, they were not brought as enslaved people. Rather, they were brought as indentured servants. That is, they were sentenced to work off some perceived uh, debt uh, through free labor provided to the, the uh, plantation owner or business owner or whoever held their contract. So Senator Cotton's legislation actually would do what they, the conservative side and, and others uh, complain about in, you know, when, when they argue against revisionist history because this legislation actually would codify the writing of a revised history of the United States. And if that wasn't enough, Senator Cotton uh, doubled down uh, a day later uh, where in an interview he called slavery the necessary evil upon which the nation was built. And I'll read a little bit of the article to you. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, 
raised eyebrows with comments that were published in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette on Sunday, calling slavery the necessary evil upon which the union was built. Cotton's remarks came in the context of an interview regarding a bill he filed that I just mentioned, uh, where federal tax dollars would be uh, prorated or reduced uh, from districts that teach the 1619 project. Uh, the 1619 Project, as I mentioned, won praise for describing how slavery's legacy continues to affect present-day America, and the author, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for her work. However, it was also the subject of criticism as historical revisionism for some of its assertions, primarily the claim that the American Revolution was primarily fought to preserve slavery. Uh, Cotton's bill, the Saving American History Act of 2020, labels the 1619 Project as a distortion of American history, uh, you know, and would cut off uh, federal funds going to uh, state and local education boards. In the interview, he cited, you know, it won't be much money, he pointed out, but even a penny is too much to go to the 1619 Project in our public schools. The New York Times should not be teaching American history to our kids. Cotton spoke at length about the core premise of the 1619 Project. The entire premise of the New York Times' factually, historically flawed 1619 Project, he said, is that America is at root a systemically racist country to the core and irredeemable. I reject that root and branch, and that's a quote from Senator Cotton. Continuing, quote, America is a great and noble country founded on the proposition that all mankind is created equal, Cotton continued. We have always struggled to live up to that promise, but no country has ever done more to achieve it, close quote. And, you know, it, it kind of strikes to me personally, in my opinion, uh, of you know, a little bit of the hypocrisy I talked about a moment ago, where the same people who are you know, calling foul for others uh, exercising a revisionist history approach uh, is looking to actually shape and revise history you know, through curtailment of the 1619 Project, or perhaps downstream some type of you know, modification or softening of the elements of that project that's taught in the schools. Um, he also addressed, as it says in the article, how he believes slavery should be taught. In the interview, Cotton said the role of slavery can't be overlooked. Quote, we have to study the history of slavery and its role and impact on the development of our country because otherwise we can't understand our country. As the founding fathers said, it was the necessary evil upon which the Union was built, but the Union was built in a way, as Lincoln said, to put slavery on the course to its ultimate extinction. Uh, instead of portraying America as irredeemably corrupt, rotten, and racist country, the nation should be viewed as an imperfect and flawed land, but the greatest and noblest country in the history of mankind. Uh, the, the article you know, is, is a presentation of you know, what the thoughts are of this, the senator from Arkansas. Uh, I, I don't know and I don't have information that tells me how widely supported this position is. But, you know, on its face, uh, again, it speaks uh, sort of hypocritically of the, you know, elements of revisionist history that we see and have seen occur, you know, throughout time, particularly when it comes to the treatment of people of color, uh, the poor and the disenfranchised. You know, if we look back to, you know, what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with the so-called Black Wall Street, where, you know, out of of jealousy and sparked by an alleged but unproven allegation of some kind of misconduct by a young African-American to a you know Caucasian woman in Tulsa. Uh, ultimately hundreds of people were injured and dozens and dozens were killed and an entire community was burned to the ground uh, while you know spectators uh, mostly white stood around and and applauded and cheered. Um, you know, and it, it also, you know, speaks to the, the revisionist nature of the history of treatment of Native Americans in this country. So, you know, this is something that, you know, if, if this is something you are, are opposed to, uh, it is incumbent on you to make uh, your senators know, uh, communicate with them and let them know that, you know, Senator Cotton's bill should not be passed and that you are watching it closely 
and you know the election which is happening in just 99 days uh, could hinge on their decision if they take this up before election day so you know this is all about as we say on this show this is all about uh, being beyond just woke being engaged and activist and also making sure that we understand the full truth as we've been speaking about so in in continuing with our discussion on the truth uh, another article that I came across uh, was written on July 11th uh, and this one came out of PolitiFact uh, from their online site and the title is is Black Lives Matter a Marxist movement now this article is based on the fact that uh, because one or more of the founders of Black Lives Matter were quoted as saying that they are you know educated Marxists close quote, that the, the uh, media, particularly the conservative media, let, let's be truthful, uh, is portraying the entire organization as a Marxist movement, when that is not, in fact, what this movement is about. You could make the argument that if the founders of Black Lives Matter were all vegan, would that make the entire movement a vegan movement? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just a way of taking a small point and exploding it into a, a, a manifesto, a, a dialogue, and marching orders to, to impose and, and effect a response uh, to that organization. Um, you know, so, you know, as, as we've, we've heard, Black Lives Matter, branding it as a Marxist organization. The attack's been made in recent weeks by Rudy Giuliani, President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Ben Carson, Trump's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, conservative talk show host uh, Mark Levin, and PragerU, which has more than face, uh, 4 million Facebook followers. Uh, aren't sure what Marxism is? Well, there's a definition provided in the article. And it says, and I quote, it was developed by 19th century German philosopher Karl Marx and is the basis for the theory of communism and socialism. Marxism envisioned the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism by the proletariat, a.k.a. working class people, and eventually a classless communist society. Uh, and that's according to Encyclopedia Britannica and Oxford Reference Dictionary. These days, Marxist usually means analyzing social change through an economic lens with the assumption that the rich and the poor should become more equal. So, you know, there's a point there that is a, you know, a, a, a point of contention that is often uh, cited, you know, especially by the, the people, uh, the 1%, uh, where, you know, they fear the stripping or the, the taking of their wealth and distributing it among all of the people in the country. It continues in a, in a Facebook post labeling Black Lives Matter as a Marxist movement. Prager U included a video interview with Carol Swain, a, back, a black conservative and former professor at Vanderbilt and Princeton universities. She said, now the founders of Black Lives Matter, they've come out as Marxists. Well, what they, what they did in the interview is said that they have an ideological frame of mind that is, uh, in particular, are, that we are trained organizers, we are trained Marxists, uh, we are, you know, super versed on sort of ideological theories. And I think that what we really try to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folks. Um, you know, again, Training and, you know, application and action and activism and, you know, implementation are separate things. So, uh, you know, again, one of the things, you know, in, in trying to find the truth is trying to make sure that you understand what is a factual nugget that is being applied perhaps out of context or in a new context that changes its overall meaning. And, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there who will, you know, comment on this. As always, I welcome your comments and I will, you know, read and, and digest and discuss them on the show. So, you know, put them in an email, send them to firedupradio at yahoo.com. And I'd love to hear from you about it and what you think. The article goes on to say, you know, but does this mean every supporter is Marxist? 
Marxists often have used useful idiots, and a Marxist movement can be more or less radical at different points in time, according to Russell Berman, a professor at Stanford University. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter's emphatic support for gender identity politics sets it apart from historical Marxism, and the goals listed on its website do not appear to be expressly anti-capitalist, which would arguably be a Marxist identifier, Berman added. You know, and the group has you know, broad support uh, around the country and not just broad support among the African-American community. If you go online and look at the coverage of Black Lives Matter marches that have occurred you know, over the, the, the uh, seven months of this year, what you will notice most particularly is that it is a multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, gathering and it is not exclusively you know, just African-Americans, which, by the way, if you go further back and do your research on the Poor People's March and the uh, March on Washington, D.C. and the Million Man March, all of the social change awareness raising activities have a broad multi-ethnic support base. You will you will find a great number of, you know, people who are not African-American in the crowd with the the people who are and are who are supporting the cause um, you know it says you know and it concludes uh, I am fairly con convinced that these are mostly attempts to smear anti-racist activities I think in some media Marxist is a dog whistle for something horrible like Nazi and thus enables to delegitimize or dehumanize them uh, Miriam Aruga I know I mispronounced that, mispronounced that name, a lecturer at the London-based Westminster School of Media and Communication told PolitiFact, Black Lives Matter is not an organization, but a fluid movement. It doesn't actually matter if one of its founders was a liberal, Marxist, socialist, or capitalist. And that's the key point, that at the end of the day, you know, it, it isn't so much what uh, the, the pedigree of the organization states or what the, the resume state, it's about what the organization is doing or is trying to do. And it, it's clear that given the times we live in now that Black, Black Lives Matter is, you know, at the point of the spear in terms of raising awareness uh, of the, the injustice that is occurring in this country, particularly racial injustice, particularly violence that is happening to uh, poor and, and people of color uh, in this country. And, you know, you need look no further than what the government is doing in Portland and what it is promising to do in other cities like Chicago and New York and uh, other areas around the country to see that, you know, it, it is a, a sore spot that has been determined that it must be addressed and addressed forcefully. So, you know, there, there's a lot of ground to cover with, you know, the, not only the message and the activism of Black Lives Matter and other similar groups, as I've mentioned in the past, you know, the, the women's movement, the Me Too movement, the uh, kids, against, uh, kids Against Guns movement, and all of these have been the subject of attacks and hyperbola uh, targeting and intending to paint them as something other than what they really are as, as an awareness-raising mechanism. And, you know, this is something that we have to be vigilant on and call it out when we see it and, you know, let, you know, the, the broader public know that the message that's being portrayed about these groups is not a truthful presentation. It is, wait for it, revisionist. And, you know, we need to address it as such. We need to call out these incorrect statements. We need to call out these inconsistencies uh, and bring the facts into the light so that people can understand. All right, the last thing I wanted to touch on uh, is an article that came out and again uh, ties back into the, the COVID-19 cases and it's an article in the opinion section, an op-ed in USA Today from their website that uh, headline says, as America tops 4 million COVID cases, the cult of Donald Trump has become a death cult. Uh, and the, the tagline under it reads, 
People who refuse to wear a mask are bolstering their sore egos. Their national motto is not e pluribus unum, it's you are not the boss of me. And, you know, the article talks about, you know, the fact that we've now passed 4 million COVID cases. And, you know, we're still arguing with doctors and epidemiologists about masks and school closures. You know, and uh, it was written by Tom Nichols, who's an opinion columnist for USA Today. And he goes on to say, I expected some of this because I literally wrote the book over three years ago on why so many Americans think they're smarter than experts. What I did not expect is that this resolute and childish opposition to expertise would be hijacked by the president of the United States and an entire American political party and then turned into a suicide cult. Uh, so, you know, he, he goes on to talk about, you know, how uh, it didn't take a lot of foresight to know even before coronavirus arrived that the United States was leaving itself vulnerable to a crisis that would require the public to trust experts. Uh, you know, and he goes on to say he was wrong to be so uh, optimistic. Uh, further on in the article, you know, talks about when the, when the pandemic arrived, the enablers in the conservative media and among the cowardly Republican political classes took their cues, masks, no masks, closing, opening from Trump, whose statements for months were a fusillade of nonsense that reflected only his own pouty anger that Mother Nature had the sheer brass to mess up his presidential grift. <laughs> so, but, you know, Americans who are now driving the pandemic are not sudden skeptics about mass or distancing or expert opinion because of street protests. Some of them reject expertise because of the previous failures of experts. And this is a good point. You know, we have seen cases where experts have given us some prediction of something that would happen. And when it doesn't, everybody cries, you know, faker, faker, snake oil salesman. So, you know, we have a lower expectation. Concludes with you know, uh, on the same day that America hit a grisly new record, President Trump went on television to explain that he must cancel his cherished plans for a political convention while insisting that children be sent back to school in the coming weeks. Millions of Americans nodded along with him, securing the knowledge that scientists are quacks and that no one understands viruses like Donald Trump. They will likely still believe that even as they lie in a hospital bed and are given the last rites with a ventilator down their throats. And he concludes, if only the rest of us did not have to risk being in bed next to them. You know, and, and obviously, you know, the US, USA Today has, you know, it, its slant and its view. Uh, you know, there are, you know, arguments that are, are out there uh, in, the, in the realm of, of what could all of, almost be called conspiracy theories that say that the whole coronavirus is a hoax, that it's made up, that it's a democratic construct to steal the election from Donald Trump. And, you know, personally, as, as someone who, you know, has felt the impact of COVID-19 in, in my family and, and so forth, um, that, that really kind of ticks me off. Uh, you know, you have 147,000 families in this country uh, who have watched someone they love die from this disease, and they cannot have closure with them, they cannot grieve, and in some cases they cannot be present at the funeral to lay them to final rest. So, you know, again, let, let's make sure that, you know, we are addressing these fallacies with facts, that we shine a bright light on them, and that we, you know, continue to be vig vigilant in our search for the truth. So that, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. As always, I appreciate your time and, and attention and listening. As I said, if you have questions or if you want to discuss any of the points I've made on the show, please send me an email at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, look and follow me on Twitter at rufiredup. That's A-R-E, the letter U, fired up. And you know, I look forward to, to seeing all of you or speaking to all of you, you know, in seven days. Please stay safe. Please do what you need to do to protect yourself and your family and your community. All right. I will see you again in a week. Take care, people.
peace message wherever you stand calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late